0: Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message.
1: Amen. You all amen that? Now, before we continue with the Feast of Tabernacles and go into the second ritual we talked about in part one, let's look at the couple of other facets and facts that this feast reveals to us. It has been said that while it took the Lord working through Moses 40 days to get Israel out of Egypt, it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. When the Israelites left Egypt, they left in a hurry and took only enough food and water to last for a few days. When these meager, meager provisions ran out, of course, so did their trust in God. Therefore, Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles recalls the miracles of God's provision, the water from a rock, the manna from heaven, the quail for meat, the protection of the glory cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, their shoes and their clothes not wearing out, that was part of it too. But this generation that came out never grasped their new identity of freedom. I mean, you know, there's a lot of Christians nowadays that don't really grasp their identity of freedom that they have. They live in bondage, always doubting, fearing, and rebelling. And because they could not and would not embrace this new freedom, they did not get to enter the rest of the promised land. You remember the story, those that doubted the, 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 uh, about going in, couldn't take the land, they didn't make it. Keep in mind the people that left Egypt were being reintroduced to God by, by Moses. After Joseph died, they, they had drifted away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and into the formalities of worshiping the many pagan gods of Egypt. For hundreds of years, while they were away from God, they had adapted greatly towards the customs, religions, and cultures of the Egyptians. So in a very abrupt way, Sukkot helps them remember the journey of the redeemed people of God from Egypt to Sinai to, to 40 years in the desert places. The repeated failures of the people during this journey in the wilderness was meant to reveal the insufficiency of the Egyptian thinking or walking like an Egyptian, if I might borrow the phrase that Pastor Travis used a couple of <laughs> in the song. They were walking like an Egyptian, right? By the demonstration of God's faithful love, mercy, and ongoing provision. All of this entire ordeal that lasted 40 years was a Sukkot experience, a temporary but necessary trial that pointed to something much greater beyond Mount Sinai. <clears throat> the construction of the Sukkah, a flimsy shelter living for seven days, symbolizes the journey of this life we live in the flesh. We covered this briefly in part one, but we need to see something else. These, these are a few scriptures for reference that points to the temporary and transitory nature of our bodily dwelling. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, translated tabernacle, is destroyed, we have a building, a house from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is a reminder to us as believers. This tent is temporary. This journey is temporary. Our destiny is eternal. 2 Peter 1, 13 and 14, uh, the Apostle Peter says, Yes, I think it right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. In both in- instances here, where we see the word tent, in the King James Version it is, tra- is interpreted as tabernacle. Tabernacle is a, t- a temporary tent. Uh, the Greek word for tent is skenos, from the root word skene, which means a hut or a temporary residence, figuratively speaking, the human body as the abode of the Spirit. Uh, otherwise, it's tabernacle. So when Paul uses the word building from God, he is pointing to our future glorification, our eternal state with God. <clears throat> building, in the Greek, building in the Greek is oikia, meaning a home, a house to abide in, implying a permanent dwelling place. So we can see from our life here on earth in the flesh as a sukkah as a moment, uh, living in not something to get used to but to look forward to the heavenly house from God, not made with hands or temporary. The Apostle Paul also wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, verses 50 and 53. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. For this, in, this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Y'all ready to change your corruption for incorruption? Why wouldn't you be? These bodies are failing every day, aren't they? Thank God he keeps us breathing another day, though. Just as God was showing this to the Israelites in Leviticus, we also, as New Covenant believers, should look at the Feast of Tabernacles as a reminder once again of the transitory nature of this life and this body. James, the the brother of Jesus, said in in chapter 414, he says, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And then Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says, And for whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance, for you serve the Lord. In other words, your life is going to vanish away. You just, well, do heartily with everything you do to the Lord. So when God, so get, let's get back on track. So when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, it was their rebirth or born-again experience. Passover was the means of redemption, the blood of the Lamb Uh, Shavuot or pentecost the law giving at mount sinai gave the revelation of the holiness of god and sukkot or or tabernacles represents the walk of faith the journey we must all go through as the redeemed of the lord god took israel out of egypt out of the world in order to reveal himself to them isn't that what he does for us also hallelujah that's that's good word right there the world system is a form of slavery of bondage to sin and self and the Sukkot feast reveals how God bypasses the world to take care of and provide for his people. John 8:36 says, Therefore, if the Son of Man makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The Sukkot feast reminds us that slavery is not an option for the redeemed of the Lord. God wants us free from the bondage of our past. We must leave behind our old identities and give up our sense of victimization and dependency on anything other than God himself. That is the wilderness experience of faith. God calls us to walk in the presence and power of his love, not yeah not in his and not in the fear of man. that's such a good word for today. I think you all would think that you should remember we are new creations in Christ, reborn to take possession of the promises that God has given to us. you know we sometimes we don't that's why that's why we can't apprehend that stuff is we don't possess the things that they didn't possess the land for forty years. And so we need to take possession of the promises that God has given to us, and the Bible is full of it. Philippians 3:20 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able, to even, he is able even to subdue all things to himself." Briefly, before we move on to the second ritual of the Peace of Tabernacles, demonstrated and fulfilled by Jesus, here's another interesting aspect of this feast you may, not or may or may not have heard about. The American holiday of Thanksgiving likely has its roots in the Jewish tradition of giving thanks to God. Some historians believe that the early pilgrims derived the idea for the holiday from the biblical feast of Sukkot. According to these scholars of history, before coming to the New World, the Pilgrims lived in exile for a decade among the Sephardic Jews in Holland, and since Holland was considered a safe haven from religious persecution at the time, because the devi- the Pilgrims were devout Calvinists and Puritans, their religious idealism let them led them let them to uh, led them to regard themselves as the new Israel, and it is likely that they both observed the Jews of Holland celebrating the Feast of Sukkot and learned that the holiday commemorated israel's deliverance from their religious persecution in ancient egypt at the time after they immigrated to the promised land of america in 1620 it is not surprising that the pilgrims may have chose the feast of sukkot as the paradigm or pattern for their own celebration of thanksgiving to god in 1621 and any of your i know uh, dj's heard of that because we were just talking about it a while ago any of you anybody else ever heard of that I hadn't either until that time. But you know, the Sephardic, it said that talked about the Sephardic Jews. The Sephardic Jews were uh, Jews from Spain. They were, the, the, that's basically, the, the Sephardi is the, is the uh, uh, word, the Jewish word for uh, Spain. These were Jews that were probably part of the dispersion after the fall of uh, uh, Jerusalem when the, Rome, the Romans uh, destroyed the temple, and they probably uh, ended up in, Spain and there, there was a large population in uh, Spain but around 1492 y'all remember the story of the Spanish Inquisition when uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella were trying to drive uh, convert everyone to Roman Catholicism if you were a Jew or some other religion or whatever if you didn't convert you were either killed or exiled you either converted or you were killed or exiled and that's what happened these these Sephardic Jews left and went to Holland and that's where they ended up being and so these pilgrims, they were under persecution. They were the separatists or the Calvinists and Puritans in England. They were under persecution because they were, the same thing was going on. Yeah, they, they, the England, during that time, the 1600s, they were wanting everyone to become uh, part of the Church of England. And it was a state church and a very cold, uh, organized, uh, you know, governmental-type church. They didn't want to be a part of that, so they fled and lived in Holland, from uh, 1607 to 1620, along um, among these, uh, at least over a, a decade, among these Jews. So obviously, they they observed them celebrating the Feast of Sukkot, and they they understood what was going on. So the the this story is that they took it to the New World with them. You know, they left in the Mayflower in 1620. Uh, they arrived in the New World. They started out with 102. They ended up with like. By the time the next they went through the winter, there was only like 53 people left. almost half of them died. So the first Thanksgiving, they they come to come about with the the Indians that were I can't pronounce the name Wapanonga or something like that. The Indians that were there. It's it's the Indian tribe. You've heard the story of Squanto about them. He him teaching them how to plant corn by putting the fish in, you know, fertilizing all that kind of stuff. Because he was an English. He had been captured by the English and had learned English, and so he knew English uh, very well, and he, had, he was the one that met up with them when they come to the Promised Land. So they made a pact, and they ended up having celebrating what was called the first Thanksgiving uh, in that next winter or the next time after that, but they had, or, there was only 53 of them to celebrate. So anyway, a little bit of history. You know, I love history. Don't you all love history? Leviticus 23:42 through 43 says, You shall dwell... In booths for seven days, all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You know, when God started teaching these feasts to the children of Israel, he, he, one thing he started, and I think he started this with the Feast of Passover, or the Passover, what they called, and he said, do this so you can teach your children because when your children sit down and they, they ask the question, why do we do this? And that's an opportunity for you to teach your children what the reason for that Passover feast was, what the reason for was first fruits, what the reason was for unleavened bread. And so that's, you know, he was building in a pattern of, of keeping that feast going from generation to generation to generation. I think we could learn a great lesson from that by teaching our kids, why do we go to church on Sunday? Why do we celebrate Easter? Why do we celebrate Christmas? You know, it's an opportunity to not do it the, the secular way, but it's to, an opportunity to do. What is the real true meaning of this feast that we have? And we get, we're, we've fallen away from that. So God had a plan, and he is a good plan. And so as a result of that plan, over the thousands of years since, uh, you know, 3,500 years since it was done, uh, you know, they still celebrate these feasts. And probably Sukkot is one of them that they celebrate as much as any of them. Anyway, just to it's just something to tell you, you know, because God had a plan. He wanted them to be taught. So the devout pilgrims regarded their perilous journey to the new world as a type of exodus event and therefore sought the appropriate biblical holiday or appointed time to commemorate their safe arrival in a land full of new promises. They called it the promised land. So we, so we see here another example and a holiday that we as Christians celebrate each year that has a link to the Feast of Tabernacles as a reminder of the transience of this life, the providence of God, and the promise of a heavenly home. Hebrews eleven eight through 10, and verse 13 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place where he, could, he, he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him, with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. And even though we are strangers and pilgrims now, we have such a great inheritance to look forward to. This would be a great moment for a shout right there, right? We have a great inheritance to look forward to because we're strangers in the land. You know, we're of the we're in the world but we're not of the world, right? Isn't that the truth? So let's move on to number the second ritual that we've been talking about where Jesus made another bold declaration about himself to the people. That like the first in the pouring of the water ritual ritual directly connected him to the feast at the present fulfillment. It was alluded to briefly in the first ritual. It, ritual it was called the illum- it was this ritual was called the Illumination of the Temple Ceremony. So as a part of this fascinating ceremony, there were four immense menorahs that were set in the temple's court. Remember, a menorah is like a giant candlestick or a light uh, lamp. Uh, at, it was set in, set in the temple's court of women, so this was during the temple time, for the Feast of Tabernacles. Each was 75 foot tall. That's a tall. That's a tall lamp. The menorah had four golden bowls, each one of them, and was reached by four ladders. Each bowl was capable of holding many gallons of oil, around 10 to 15 gallons. Four youths of priestly descent, these were priests in training, each held a large container of olive oil, which they used to fill the bowls. Now keep in mind the, the reason it was olive oil because it was the olive oil with the crushed olive oil was said to be to give the brightest light of any other kind of oil that there was. So they used the crushed olive oil. So you can imagine, look at that: 10 to 15 gallons for each lamp. That's a lot. That's that's a bunch of olive oil, and they did this every night. They would climb the 75 foot ladders. I don't know if I'd want to climb a 75 foot ladder. Would you? <laughs> wow. And replenish the oil in the giant menorahs. Wicks were made from the old cast-off priestly garments and rags from worn-out vestments. When the, <clears throat> when the menorahs were lit, they generated such intense and brilliant light that not a courtyard in the whole city of Jerusalem failed to be illuminated by the blazing light. This ceremony was repeated every night of the feast. So you can imagine, it's a, it's these four candlesticks in the, or lampstands or menorahs, 75 feet tall, lit every night, the whole city of Jerusalem was lit. Jerusalem sits on the edge of one of the highest tablelands in Israel, approximately 2,600 feet in elevation. It is 37 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, because of these giant light towers in the temple courts and their brightness, (coughs) it is said that the city of Jerusalem was called the light of the world by seafarers on the coast. They could see the lights from that distance. Israel and Jerusalem, from the beginning, were to be the light to the world and bring forth the true light of the world. Isaiah 49, 6 The latter part of that be, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And then Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, it says, Arise, shine, and let your light, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. And behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This light from the giant menorahs was a type symbolizing the Shekinah glory of God and the illuminati- illuminating light of the coming Messiah. After the last and great day of the feast, the eighth day, the next morning Jesus was once again in the temple teaching. This is the day that the Pharisees and the scribes brought the woman caught in adultery. You can read the story for yourself in John 8 verses 3 through 11. I didn't copy the story in but after Jesus, most of you have heard about it, but after Jesus put these self-righteous Jewish leaders in their place for wanting to stone her, you know, because he told them, who is, whoever was, is without sin cast the first stone, well, he pardoned the woman, saying to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. A lot more to this account, but I don't have time to cover it at this moment. So Jesus rescued the woman from stoning. And then he proclaimed to those who witnessed the event this declaration in John. See the people gathered at the temple in great numbers could know would know exactly what he was inferring to, the temple lighting ceremony and that Jerusalem was called the light of the world, which had just concluded about eight after eight days. In both of these events, Jesus was essentially saying that he was the re- reality, that these feasts were pointing to. He is the living water, and he is the light of the world. The trouble was that the Jewish religious religious leaders. <coughs> The Jewish religious leaders and their political leaders of the time were expecting a different type of Messiah than he represented. represented. And so they rejected him, and, he did not, and they did not catch the point he was illustrating to them. Both times, you know, they, the, the, and it was the leaders that rejected him. Both times when he, when he stood up and he said he, he was the one that had, was the living water and the light of the world, the religious leaders just wanted to argue with him. This is also, the and when he made that declaration, I am the light of the world, it's also the second of the seven I am declarations of Jesus recorded only in John's gospel that point to his unique divine identity and purpose in declaring himself to be the light of the world. You know, it starts out with I am the bread of life, and it goes to I am the light of the world, and, there, and there's five more that you only find in the, in the, in, in the gospel of John. Uh, you may have preached on that one time, didn't I? I thought you did, yes. And it's great, great messages in each one of them. In declaring himself to be the light of the world, Jesus was claiming that he is the exclusive source of spiritual light. No other source of spiritual truth is available to mankind, Jews and Gentiles alike. Truly, Jesus is the true Shekinah glory that that we're talking about as far as the symbolization of those lamps and those lights. The light of the world. So as a result of this rejection, the Jewish people from this time till now have been restless. Been a restless, wandering people for 2,000 years. Not only as a people, but in their souls as well. But we, we believe that this is about to change for Israel. Their rescue and rest is coming. Can you say hallelujah to that? Romans 11:26 through 27. We've read many of the scriptures to do that. But it's, this one says, these two say, And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So, as we come to a close in the study of this feast, we can also see the personal application here for us as believers that there is a present rest for today and also a heavenly rest in the future. But God's rest is not dying and going to heaven, it is living in the fullness of God's life here and now. It is walking in his peace, his power, and his rest. As pictured in all the feasts. And I hope that's what you've seen in all of these feasts, that there's peace, power, and rest in these feasts. That's what it's demonstrated, the whole plan of redemption through that. He says in Matthew 11:28 through 30, he says, Come to me, all you la- who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's because Jesus is yoked with us. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit, God has taken up residence in you, in your spirit, in your body. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the essence of the Feast of Tabernacles presently and to come, that God is living with us now and is going to live with us in the future. This should be humbling to us, knowing that to know that what, whatever we participate in, whatever we partake of, whatever, wherever we go, we're talk, taking God, the Holy Spirit, with us in the holy temple of the inner man. This should encourage and challenge us to live lives of holiness and purity. So next time you go into the bar, you're taking the Holy Spirit with you, right? Or some other place, and you know, maybe you're not going. When you go into Walmart, you're taking the Holy Spirit with you, right? True, that's even better. Just a little more on the prophetic aspect of the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, the Feast of Ingathering. As we alluded to earlier, the prophetic implication <coughs> of this feast is that of pointing to the millennium. The millennium is simply, it's not, you won't find it in the Bible, it's never mentioned as the millennium, but it's two Latin words, which is mil and uh, annum, which means, mil means uh, mille, mille or whatever means, a thousand, and then uh Annum means a year, so it's basically millennium is a conglomeration of those two words, meaning a thousand years. But it is is also the dispensation of divine government, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth with his saints, as shown in Revelation 20, 21, and 22. The seven days of the feast is representing the future millennial kingdom of Jesus when he will dwell or tabernacle with us. That is why this feast is referred to as a time of rest and a time of rejoicing. It is the final ingathering of all the harvest of those who belong to God. See, the rapture of the church will have occurred by this time. The nation of Israel and the world will have been through the seven years of tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, their literal day of atonement for them. This will be the time of their purification. I'm talking about Israel and the time of their redemption. Satan will be bound. I'm just giving you a quick synopsis of these because you, what you need to do is go back and read uh, Revelation 20, 21, and 22, and it, these things will fit together, and you'll see how it goes. But Satan will be bound for a thousand years, not able to deceive the nations during this time. Whoever is left of all the nations after the tribulation will live in a near-perfect world for a thousand years, not completely free from sin, but free from the influence of, seven, of, of Satan during that thousand years. In other words, this is Christ is here on earth, the saints in Israel are, are leading, are ruling the world, and, and so Satan is bound during this time. But that doesn't mean people don't sin, but you need to read. But anyway, when, then when Satan is released after the thousand years, there will be one last rebellion led by Satan, and those who are with him will be defeated by fire that comes down from God. You won't even have to lift a finger. God's going to destroy him with a fire from heaven. Revelation 20, verse 9. The devil will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, tormented with the false prophet and the beast forever and ever. The great white throne judgment will occur. That happens in verse 11, where those who were not written in the book of life will be judged for their works. And if you're at this judgment, it's too late. You too will be cast into the lake of fire. Death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. All people not found in the book of life the Lamb's book of life will also be cast into the fire, into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the first death actually being the actual physical death that you take. In Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, afterwards, it says, Afterwards all things will be made new, a new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem will come down from heaven prepared as a bride for her husband. This is when eternity begins. Revelation 21, 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. Isaiah sixty-five seventeen says says basically the same thing as as what it says in verse one and two. He says, "Behold, uh, Isaiah was prophesying this." He says, "For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind." So those prophecies in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah and all the minor prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, Isaiah. You need to pay attention to what they're saying, and that's where we get all of this. Zechariah is another one. So let's look at the prophetic implication for Israel in the millennium that we've seen in previous re- scripture references. All through this, we've given different scripture references pointing to Israel in her time. In Zechariah 12, 10 through 11, it, it, the, he's, he's writing, and he says, I will pour out Pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will look for him, as one mourns. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Talking about Jesus and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning of Jerusalem like the morning at Hadad Remnon, Remnon in the plain of Megiddo. And then you see the prophetic implication in that all the way through that in that day a fountain in in Zechariah 13 verse 1 and 2 it says in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness that fountain is the blood of Jesus is what we're seeing it shall be in that day says the Lord of hosts that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from the land but, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. I put that verse in from the New Testament in there because I want you to look at this. A thousand, one day is with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Look what it says in Hosea 5, 5.15. This is God speaking. He said, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. They rejected him, remember? And then they will seek my face in their affliction affliction they will earnestly seek me, and then here's where in hosea six one through twi- uh, verse one and two he says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us, he has stricken, but he will bind us up after two days He will revive us on the third day He will raise us up that we may live in his sight. so live that scripture up just for a second it says, after two days he will revive us a lot of people. But the commentators believe that what he's talking right here, when we say a day of, is 1,000 years, or a 1,000 years is a day, after two days means 2,000 years, the church age, the, the dispensation of grace that we're living in. So it's directly pointing to the church age. And then on the third day, he will raise us up. That's the 1,000-year millennial reign is when the Israelites will be raised again. Once again, to, and they will acknowledge at the end of the tribulation period, right before the millennial age starts. That's when Israel will recognize their Savior in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what it says. On the third day, he will raise us up, talking about Israel, that we may live in his sight. And then Zechariah 14, 16. And it shall come to pass that every, every one who is left of all the nations, this is during the millennial reign of Christ, which came against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. See, the Feast of Tabernacles is the one feast that's going to be continued to keep. They will continue to keep. Even during the thousand-year reign, it will continue to be done. All over the world, they will do that. And then, of course, if you read a little further, he pronounces anybody that does not go and, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they will uh, suffer the consequences of a plague of not having rain and things like that during that time period. But you can read that. I encourage you to read all of Zechariah 14 because it's, it's talking about the millennium uh, that we're, we're talking about. So Israel will be able to finally enjoy the seasonal rest as we talked about as pictured in the Feast of Tabernacles and spoken by the prophet Isaiah and fulfill and fulfillment of covenant promise of God in Genesis to Abraham. Isaiah 51 11 says, so the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And then Genesis 17, 7 is the, is the promise uh, that we were talking about. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants. He's talking to Abraham after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So anybody that says that Israel does not have a part in the, in, in the plan of God, you know, you hear about a lot of people that say that. They say that, uh, you know, when the church come along and Israel rejected. That uh, they that's that supersedes everything that Israel has. They're, they're, those kind of people are called supersessionists. You know, they they say uh, the church supersedes Israel, but that's not the case. There's too much scripture. There's too much validation in the scripture. There's too much evidence to say that that we can see it. We've been through it so many times. And so I want to close with this, as we started uh, when we first talked about the feast and God told everybody he said uh, told uh, moses he said tell them they will sh- they will live in sukkahs for seven days or booths for seven days and then the on the eighth day there will be another uh, sabbath another day when no customary work so the eighth day of the feast symbolizes eternity see what i'm saying is the seven days that's the millennial period of time the eighth day you know, this, this feast has always been portrayed as a time of jubilant joy and feasting and happiness, sacrifices. I wish I had time to go through the seven sacrifices for the nations, but uh, I, I don't have time have to cover that some other time. But the uh, but the day of the feast symbolizes eternity. And other seven days are over that uh, then we step in. That represents the, the thousand years. and When the thousand years are over... Then Earth, uh, we go into eternity. Eight is the number of new beginnings and a new order of creation. The new heaven and the new earth, as in Revelation 21: 21, 20, 21, one, the last great day of the feast of rejoicing. As one commentator put it, it's like God saying, "God, it's like God is saying," and this is just a commentary from it. But I thought it was pretty appropriate, you know. The feast is over. The dishes are done. All is well with everything let's sit down and have a cup of coffee enjoy each other's company for a while a very long while so what he's saying is everything that time has provided to us is is there but now we're going to go into eternity where there is no time and time has been done away with you know talking about the eighth day what's the importance of the eighth day and what's the what's actually happened just a couple of quick things about that did you know the number in greek numerology for jesus is 888 you ever heard of that 888 eight, eight. It's the perfect number because what it means is uh, I mean, they take this when, when, when the Greeks in, uh, uh, translated the Old Testament into Greek, Jesus' name uh, in Greek was, uh, was Jesus, but if you put, and they assigned numbers to every letter, just like the Hebrews do. So when that number is added up, it adds up to 888. What that number means, and there is no other name but Jesus that comes up with that numerical number sequence. It means eternity, it means perfection, and it means victory over evil for a few things. But listen to this. Circumcision was done on the eighth day. That recognized the, the holiness, the seal of the covenant and purification of God. Just give you an idea of how important the eighth day is. Young animals for sacrifice had to be eight days old, or they were considered un, uh, ceremonial un, unclean. And then persons unclean from leprosy or, or uh, Nazarite, Defiled by touching the dead. In other words, he, he, he heard his vows. He was accounted clean on the eighth day. Same with the tabernacle, the altar, and the vessels. They had seven days for purification. The eighth day, they were purified. The eighth day characterizes the gospels. Since Christians met on the first day, which is the same as the eighth day. In other words, remember, the Sabbath day was the seventh day. Christians met on the first day, which was the eighth day, which is, means that's the first day of the week for them. Jesus rose on the first day, on the eighth day, which is the first day of the week. The eighth day characterized is characterized as eternity after the Sabbath of the. In other words, the millennium is considered the Sabbath Sabbath of the generations of the Israel all through there. So the eternity is is the eighth day or the day that will last forever. And at this time, after the fulfillment of the Sabbath dispensation, everything on earth and heaven will be consecrated. So you see how that works out. You know, we live the millennial thousand years with Christ, and then in the, when we go into eternity, there will be no more sin. There will, that's when he wipes away the tears from everybody's eyes. That's when uh, we go in, there will be no more sickness. You know, during the millennial time, there's going to be people living on earth that made it through the tribulation, and they're, they're going to they're be able to sin, but they won't have the influence of the devil. It'll be a little harder, but they will sin just because of human nature. So, when that happens, after that happens, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, the, everyone is resurrected to the new glorified body. There won't be any of that. So, we're looking forward to the eighth day, right? All right. That concludes Feast of Tabernacles, mostly. We may, may do something else on next Wednesday, so, all right? I hope y'all are getting, I hope y'all got a few tidbits out of this as we go through there, but Praise God. He has so much stuff in his, in his word, and I thank God for everything that he shows us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day, for the blessings of your word, everything that we see in here. Father, I, just, you just open up new dimensions of, of the greatness of Jesus, the greatness of you and your power and the plan that you have for us, Father, and I thank you for that. I thank you, Father, that you, you are able to show us all these things, Father, that your word, there's no way that we can ever see, all of the layers of, of uh, greatness and all of the layers will have eternity to s- explore that, I guess, with you. But, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus, who is the, uh, the perfection, the victory over evil, uh, perfection in every way. And we thank you for that. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, that we would have that opportunity to live in the eighth day with, uh, with God in, for eternity and enjoy every bit of it. So, Father, we thank you for that. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our church center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.